0: This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on December 1st and December 2nd. Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. You know, over the course of the pandemic, as we've been taping the show over Zoom and not in the co-op studios, I've gotten into the habit of saying the show is home-crafted and home-recorded. But that's not entirely accurate this week, as we're actually recording this from the Chronicle office on 40th Street, just off the I-35 access road. Staff officially returned to the building this week, the first time we've all been together since March of 2020. Hopefully, what this return to the office means for the show going forward is that we'll be able to collaborate a bit more and bring more voices into the mix. To that end, I'm going to get out of the way and hand the mic over to Chronicle Music Editor Kevin Curtin for our first interview. I'll be back in the second half of the show. All yours, Kevin.
1: This is Kevin Curtin, music editor of the Austin Chronicle. And this week in our print edition, we have a very interesting story about the instrumental hip hop producer, Boom Baptist, a.k.a. Andrew Thaggard, who's not only musically prolific, but also, in my opinion, has an elite independent marketing savvy and the writer of this story is Julian Towers, who
2: is joining us today. How are you, Julian? Oh, I'm great. Real great, Kevin.
1: Thank you for being on our radio show. This is your first time, on it, and we're happy to have you on our local airwave.
2: Yeah, um, hopefully I can conquer them. Just absolutely saturate my presence. Please.
1: That's what it is all
2: about. You
1: will be accumulating townie points with every question you answer. So, I want to begin this conversation by giving a rundown of just some of the Boom Baptist release-related rollouts that he has done that you are aware of in the last few years. Can you talk about some of the ones you encountered while reporting on this story?
2: Sure, yeah. Actually, I can start the one that's in the very opening graph of the story, which I try to use to fool readers in the manner that he did so with his Instagram followers, which is for his Comfort Food compilation. He and two other producers, riding off of Jay Dilla's iconic Donuts release before he died, sort of remixing and rethinking that. He made a fake Donut brand called Comfort Food. And in addition to the fake coffee grinds you get with the record and, you know, the fake cinnamon swirl vinyl, he released a video when they actually ran out of that vinyl that was like a fake press conference where he was the CEO. And he was, you know, like, wow, we're so grateful America is eating our donuts. And then one reporter asks him, hey, is it true it gives Americans diabetes? And he goes into panic mode and compensates. He's very much playing this kind of, like, smarmy market man persona, which is, you know, we talked about this, like, the fact that he's portraying this character interfaces with the fact that, you know, in the Austin hip-hop scene, he's kind of like Mr. Market Man. It's kind of the identity he's taken up very recently I think the origin point he localized for when he started with these marketing schemes, because he's been, you know, in Austin since 2009, he's been making music since before that, but only really in the last two years has things taken off for him in conjunction with these pretty outlandish release schemes of his. It was actually not one of his Boom Baptist projects, but with the Vapor Caves, he and his wife were working on the design concept for the record Feel Yourself. And he realized that there was this whole theme of bodies that he wanted to just jump on. And it was sort of this idea that he could build out a kind of design presence from the content of the music, which I think inspired him because he had a lot of music he hadn't released that he'd been sitting on for much of a decade. And the one that really followed that up, which might be his most ambitious one, is this fake NBA jam game that he developed, Boom Shakalaka.
1: Boom Shakalaka. And I want to get to the Boom Shakalaka but let's go back to the vapor Caves for a second, which is, is kind of an electronic-oriented dream pop project, or kind of, what would you
2: say, vaporwave? You know, it, 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 they take on a lot. They have that kind of, like, beach house kind of setup, which is sort of like, you know, guy and girl, you know, on their keyboards. It trends into, like, some kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek Miami funk kind of stuff, which is actually where he grew up in Miami, so like I think those influences he carries with him. Yeah, it's definitely a vehicle for like a kind of throwback retro, but also kind of good to nod off to while you're like, it's like the stars are out and you're sitting in a chair that's probably overpriced.
1: Right. So, speaking of overpriced things, the rollout for that project was a commercial for a real estate company that was only implausible because. Austin's real estate gentrifier house flippers are not so self-aware.
2: It's doubly self-aware in his case because he is a realtor house flipper man who has, in the last year or two, alongside his music picking up, he you know studied and got his realtor license and he's flipping houses all around Austin. I think he's making an effort to focus on creative people. You know, he has a dream of owning a house and he wants to do that too, but. I think the strain that connects all this stuff is that like, it's self-aware, it's making fun of like the corporate thing, but he's kind of aware of the fact that he's that corporate person, at least a little bit. So there's definitely some self-effacing going on.
1: That one was almost hard to discern whether, if you didn't know who Boom Baptist was, you could have seen the video for that and just been like, oh, Austin's housing market, real estate market, grinds my gears, whatever. But with the boom shakalaka, which was oriented around the 1990s arcade-style basketball game NBA Jam, he somewhat at one point was trying to convince people that he had signed some kind of a two-way contract to be in the NBA, which is much less plausible.
2: Yeah, he's definitely, he's a 36-year-old man, I guess 35, whenever that came out. And they tend not to really be sourcing from that age bracket too much, at least not that I've heard. He's also not the build, we can say. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that project is actually probably just in terms of the album marketing interface. It's probably the most seamless of his work because you listen to that album and there's, there's you know, a sort of a through line of sampling that's like makes it sound like you've pushed play on like the SNES NBA Jam game. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like if MF Doom was sampling video games and not like comic book cartoons.
1: That's a great way to put it. And that release had a beautiful physical product, or I think as maybe you describe in the feature as, you know, he has a knack for packaging or something. But it had a vinyl picture disc that looks like a basketball with the NBA Jam logo, and then also a cassette that looks like Super Nintendo cartridge for NBA Jam. Compared to what you see of other independent artists who either self-release or release DIY on labels that they operate in house. How creative
2: would you say that his rollouts are, or how are they different? What makes them really special and creative is, yeah, I'm just like the surface flashiness is I feel like he's kind of creating the narrative of himself behind each one, such that like the label is so, is starting to become synonymous with sort of the boom Baptist character, which is the sort of kind of like desperate attention-seeking but in a kind of a cool guy kind of way where you know i mean actually the fact that his newest release is a sort of rick james tie-in is sort of appropriate to me because i feel like the boom baptist character is sort of this outlandish rick james kind of like self-promoting kind of scummy but you're rooting for him anyway despite those things because he's so open about them and the extent to which he's building that as a universe for himself kind of reminds me Actually, yeah, to go bring it back to MF Doom a little bit, which is a big inspiration for him, just in terms of the extent to which everything he did seemed to fill out sort of this alternate zone, wherein he's like the only person making music. And I feel like you could get lost in his... I mean, I think that not yet, because he's still still starting out. But I think once we've seen like three or four years of Cream Dream, if everything goes right for him, there should be like a back catalog that's exciting to work through in a kind of linear way where you're seeing this like world of record releases really fill out. And I think it nourishes his music too, because, you know, his music is is super vibey and chill and fun, but the way that it sort of brushes against the satirical component kind of gives it this edge that it doesn't have just by itself. It's kind of like in commenting on the sort of like, commercial corporate things that he's sort of trying to, with like the consumerism of the donut company or the real estate schemes of gentrification and having like this sort of like breezy kind of chill wave, symphonic, very crackling drums, like vocal samples of Buster Rhymes flying in all over the place undercuts his work in a way that I think invigorates it, where it kind of connects back to this overseeing Boom Baptist character who's like after your dollars, but is like the coolest guy. So you want to give it to him.
1: Absolutely. And I think that it's all a great example for the many of us independent releasing artists on how to really look like you're having fun with your own releases in a way that's attractive to other people. You want to be part of that fun too. And you can tell, you know, for me, I can tell it's successful on his own micro level because when you go to the Bandcamp page, almost all of his releases, the physical copy is sold out, which makes it ripe for re release through other labels in the future. And I know that's already being done with Boom Shakalaka, but yeah, that's like, the enthusiasm he has for the sale for me it lends to this anticipation of oh i'm interested in how he's going to market the next thing as much as what the actual product
2: i think a lot of people are probably coming to that conclusion as well because i think each release kind of angles to bring in a new segment of fandom who might be attracted to it just pure aesthetics like i think a lot of people who bought boom shakalaka are just Basketball NBA Jam fans are like, wow, this is sick. I want to hang this on my wall. I want this to be around because it looks really cool. And I've never listened to a Mad Lib project in my life, right? And I think the Rick James will tie into that too, because it's got this cute little couch toy. I mean, that one's tied into a Dave Chappelle thing. And when I asked him about that, he's like, I didn't time that super great because of all the rainstorm coming down on Mr. Chappelle right now. In addition to sort of Rick James having his own kind of checkered past that always comes up every three or four years. Yeah, I just think that each release is kind of at once aimed to feed this anticipation for what's the guy going to do next, but also kind of bring in some other people. But he cares so much about his sort of wonky brand of instrumental hip hop, which I think is maybe worth talking about just a little bit because it's more unique than it initially seems because a lot of this stuff, you know, it sounds like the sort of like early 2010s, like chill wave kind of wavy synth stuff. And the drums are very crisp. It doesn't sound like boom bap at all. But he has throughout his sort of use of sampling, he'll like, is very 90s in that he'll like, bite a lot of rap lines from like, you know, Wu Tang or like EPMD records as you would if you were DJ Premier or somebody. And I think if people are gonna listen to his music after coming in through the aesthetic, they might find it's more unique also than a lot of other instrumental hip hop producers at the same time too. So I think he's really owning two lanes, musically and with marketing and doing his own thing. And I think he's really reinvigorating both. I mean, this is a guy who spent about much of the decade sitting on a lot of the work he was doing because he didn't know how to contextualize it. And really the marketing has let him see the music for the value it has by creating a narrative around it where he can express himself. And I just think he's sort of reaching a plane of confidence that's very fun to watch. That's sort of the character. Again, it's the sort of confident guy who's very hourly marketing himself, but it's so freaking good at it that you're like, yes, please, I'll take both colors of the vinyl.
1: <laughs> Julian Towers, thank you so much for being on our show today. And thank you for contributing this very entertaining feature. And I hope everybody gets a chance to read it and take the Boom Baptist trip. Stick around for Kimberly Jones and more of the Austin Chronicle Radio Show.
0: Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op 91.7 FM. We've just been listening to a track by Boom Baptist. And welcome to December. It's the 6th of Hanukkah. We're barreling toward Christmas in Kwanzaa. The holidays are upon us. So I've asked last week's guest, Austin Chronicle culture editor, Richard Whitaker, to come back on the show and continue the conversation we started last week. We're going to focus on unconventional holiday movies this week. Richard, thank you for joining me. Oh, pleasure as always, Kim. So we were just talking about how little time we have to get through a lot of movies. We're going to run out of time again, so let's just do this. Let's jump <laughs> in.
3: Richard, you're first. We always do run out of time, but I'm going to start off with one of my favorite weird hybrid movies because I love a good musical and I love a good horror film. And Anna and the Apocalypse, which is a British film from that debuted in 2017, actually in Austin at Fantastic Fest. And it's basically kind of your standard high school musical, plus a zombie invasion. It's glorious. It's very much kind of hand and home made in Scotland, but it's not the kind of beautiful dales and lochs that you see in uh, Outlander. This is gritty, nasty, and the songs are great. But it's also got this beautiful story at the middle, at the heart of it, of this schoolgirl who's going through everything the schoolgirl goes through getting talked about behind her back. And then the zombie apocalypse happens and just ramps everything up. It's a fantastic film. And you know, the show tunes are wonderful. A particular favorite, you will watch it and end up humming no such thing as a Hollywood ending for months afterwards. It's just that you're going to be your new Christmas earworm. I warn you of that.
0: That's a fun addition to the you know Christmas musicals are standard. And that's cool that we're having new ones now. You know, it's the worst possible Christmas, so yours will seem much
3: better, whatever happens.
0: (laughs) Okay, for my pick, I actually have two picks, which is sort of an emerging queer Christmas canon. The last few years, we've had some films that have broadened the scope of traditional Christmas movies. So one is Carol. This is Todd Haynes' terrific adaptation of a Patricia Highsmith novel. It's about two women from very different social classes who fall in love in the 50s it's set at Christmas time. It's very fraught. It's very beautiful. It's beautifully acted. Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara play the central lovers. And Todd Haynes is just, you know, who's getting a lot of buzz this year for his Velvet Underground doc. This is him in his throwback to golden age of Hollywood filmmaking era. It's just a sumptuous movie. Okay, so that's one. Something slightly less highfalutin, there is The Happiest Season. This came out last year, actually. I think we're all pretty familiar with the made-for-TV Christmas movies, you know, the Hallmarks, the Lifetimes, Netflix is getting in that game now. Pretty much so. They're pretty terrible. I watched one last weekend with Brooke Shields and Carrie Elways. It was pretty bad. But this is the rare TV Christmas movie with a gay romance at its core. It's a Hulu original film directed by Clea Duvall, who a lot of people know as an actress. She was an icon, and but I'm a cheerleader. This one stars Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. It's very cute. It's definitely cut above your traditional Hallmark Christmas fair. Like I said, it came out last year. And at the time, I, a straight woman, expressed some frustration with my best friend and her wife about this, just like, you know, that's so great. We get a great gay Christmas movie, but the plot is about being closeted. And they basically told me to shut my mouth, um, that representation (laughs) is representation, and that they were over the moon to actually see, you know, see themselves portrayed in this movie. So totally recommend it. Well, if you actually feel like getting out to the cinema to
3: see something, because all of these are streaming at the moment, nothing like a bleak British Christmas, and you can't do much better on the bleakness front than Silent Night, another fantastic fest title. It's Kira Knightley doing the Christmas thing again, but this is No Love Actually, this is a bunch of rich friends get together for Christmas and they bring all their kids with them. And you'll spend 20 minutes going, why am I subjecting myself to these horrible toffs? They're just the worst poshos that you can imagine, They're like every British stereotype of the upper class. And then you find out what's happening. I know I'm going for really super dark Christmas films. This is unbelievably bleak, but it's. What happens when you have people who are genuinely facing the absolute end? And it's kind of like something like, you know, this is the end, that kind of apocalyptic film of people being subjected to their friends and the last moments of the world. But it does it with this incredible delicacy. And there's just something just heartbreaking about this. But it's all set at Christmas. It's one big Christmas party. So it's this weird juxtaposition and this is one of these ones that when I saw it, I was like, there's no way this will get theatrical distribution for Christmas. And it has. Much to my, I say, pleasure, much to my surprise. But again, this is one of these ones where you go, well, no matter how bad my Christmas gets, it's not going to be as bad as this one. But the performances are just stunning. It includes um, Roman Griffin Davis, who played Jojo Rabbit in Jojo Rabbit. It's actually directed by his mother, Camille Griffin. It's fantastic. It was It's one of the things that i walked away from this year that's left a very deep impact. Not the happiest Christmas. (laughs) 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 I think the Christmas films, to a certain degree, should give you a little bit of context on what you have to look forward to yourself.
0: Well, let me see if I can lift the mood just a little bit, but not much. I'm going to go French. 2008's A Christmas Tale. I adore this movie. Just, I I feel this movie in my bones. This is an Arno Desplichen film starring Catherine Genove and Matthew Amalric who has, since this movie came out, American audiences will absolutely recognize him. I guess most notably from which Bond? A Quantum of Solace, that Bond movie. He was the baddie in that. So this one is about three adult children gathering for Christmas at their parents' house. Their mother has a rare form of leukemia. Some of the kids are estranged, but they have gathered to test to see if they are a bone marrow match. So I said nominally brighter spirits than than (laughs) you're all, But it's a darkly funny film. Des has cited Ingmar Bergman and Wes Anderson as influences. And you can really feel that sort of dark, dysfunctional family, but like some also some quirky elements and some magical realism every once in a while, a terrific soundtrack and just like Very lived-in performances. You truly believe that these people are related to each other. And in one case, they actually are because Catherine Deneuve's daughter is in the movie. You know, if you're familiar with this director's work, you'll notice he remixes the same themes and obsessions and visual motifs and even names of his characters pop up in all his movies. But it absolutely stands on its own. It's set at Christmas. It's cold. There's Christmas music. And it's just a very funny, sexy It's a French movie that feels very American. That's my recommendation. Richard? We talk
3: about alternative in a way of, of just going like, well, here's something where the story is alternative. I've got one that's a little bit off kilter. It is a straightforward Christmas movie, but it slipped under the radar. Klaus, which is a 2019 Netflix original. It's animated. It's gorgeous. It was my favorite animated film of 2019, but nobody really noticed it at the time. And now people are starting to, it's kind of going through the same thing that Nightmare Before Christmas did. Of Nobody cared at the time, but now people are starting to realise how good this is. It's about a uh, postman called Jesper, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, who's sent to this island in the middle of nowhere, which is riven by this feud between the Crumbs and the Ellingbows, who have been feuding for so long, they can't even remember why. And he comes across the woodsman, Klaus, voiced by J.K. Simmons, who... He's just this mysterious figure with a house full of toys, and he manages to convince Klaus for his own reasons to give the toys to the local kids and accidentally causes peace between the crumbs and the ellingbows, much to the chagrin of the clan leaders. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's this wonderful pastel crayon feel to the art, just fantastic. It's funny. It's sweet. The end is heartbreaking in the best possible way. You know, you will cry, but, you know, it's kind of the origin of Santa Claus, just done so wonderfully. And there's little bits and pieces in there that if you really pay attention to, really fill the story out. This is a great little film. And I am going to throw, uh, you know, if we're talking about unconventional, but speaks to you kind of Christmas movies, I'm going to throw one out there. You know, As everybody knows, not particularly local to Austin originally. And one great British tradition at Christmas is Jason and the Argonauts. I kid you not. The 1963 adaptation of The Greek Myth. Every Christmas, this would be on every year, just before the Queen's speech, which is you know when you kind of start falling asleep from Turkey. It's incredible. I mean, the, the, the film itself is, it's not that great. The performances aren't, aren't wonderful. What you watch it for, one fantastic score by Bernard Herrmann. But two is all the stop motion animation by Ray Harryhausen. There's so many wonderful, memorable sequences. The ship between the crashing rocks, Jason fighting the Hydra. And then at the end, you've got the sequence where Jason is fighting seven skeletons. And you think about it, it was 1963, there was stop motion was all done by one animator. How was this done? And then you'll fall into a turkey coma. And that, my friends, is a very British Christmas.
0: Well, it's funny. We did not tell each other our lists ahead of time, although I guessed a couple of yours. But I actually have, for my last pick, also a British Christmas tradition that in America is, I don't think anybody pays attention to this at all. This is the snowman. Oh, yes. Yeah. From 1982, it's a wordless. It's adapted from a British picture book by Raymond Briggs. It's a wordless animated film, a traditional hand-drawn animation about a snowman that comes to life. He hangs out with a little boy. They go flying and just have a night of adventures. And then he melts in the morning in a properly dark fashion. But this is streaming in America. Nobody talks about this movie here. And I gather in, in England, this is...
3: Oh, it's it's a Christmas tradition. And not only that, it started the tradition of animated Christmas specials. So without this, no Wallace and Gromit. That doesn't happen. The Snowman is where this whole thing starts. But this thing is so gorgeous. It looks like it's done with pencil crayons. It's just absolutely sumptuous. And, you know, you talk about Anna the Apocalypse song. Walking in the air, you will be humming that for months afterwards. You will not get that out of your brain.
0: It's really lovely. We're out of time. As always. Yes. So that is a wrap. Thank you, Richard, again, for coming right back on. I want to also thank Kevin Curtin and Julianne Towers for coming on the show. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and our theme music was written by Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson. Richard, this one's for you. We're going to end the episode with a song from Richard's pick, Anna and the Apocalypse.